0: And let's just ask God to teach us from His Word this morning before we enter into our message. Father, it's always a great privilege to reach over and take our Bibles and open it and to study it together. We're blessed to be a part of a body of believers, like-minded faith, to encourage one another and to uphold one another. Father, thank you for the appropriateness and the relevance of your word. The teachings of our Lord Jesus that are, are so front page. We need it. We ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us and strengthen us through the word, to bring clarity, to give us a tenacity to walk in obedience, to do our part to give focused attention, that we would not be daydreamers, but that we would be quiet, attentive, disciplined listeners. Father, thank you for how you grow us in times like this. and You accomplish much in us through the preaching of the Word. We ask that uh, you would do it again in these minutes ahead. Use your Word to sharpen us to teach us, to encourage us, to conform us to the image of Christ. It's in His name that we've gathered and in His name we preach. Amen. It occurred to me, as I prepared for our message time today, that um, our subject matter today, particularly this Sunday is quite heavy, even difficult. Divorce in our preaching time, homosexuality in our adult Sunday school time. It's like, yeah, get a coffee, let's go to church. Let's be encouraged. There is a change, by the way, um, due to some scheduling. We made some last-minute changes about a week ago, right after the service last week. And today, Pastor Mark Henson, as you can see in the bulletin, will be dealing with that topic, so teenagers will be in the auditorium. Then next week is Tom Jesserin. Uh, the Jesserins are away today at a church ministering in Pennsylvania, and, uh, or New York. And uh, So Tom will be dealing with the topic of Islam, and then I will wrap up the summer with that... Um, some silent section of the Bible that does not address or condemn slavery. And what is that all about? So um, I hope that you'll take advantage of these answers class and then notice on the back of your bulletin that there are some tremendous opportunities upcoming for adult education. I wanted to take just a minute, and not in a defensive way or an apologetic way at all, but I wanted to take a minute and just list why it is we're dealing with this subject today. Because I want you to know that I know that divorce is a horrible subject. You need to know that I know that many people in this room have been ground up over this thing. Your life has been altered. And if you look back, some of the main things that you want to forget about have to do with divorce and all that went on in that context. I understand that. So I want you to know that it's with great care that I want to address this subject and I want it to be helpful. And why do we deal with it? I thought it was a good moment to just remind you about what we do and why we do it. The first reason we're going to deal with this subject today is because it's the next topic in the text. And you say, well, what's that all about? That's a no-brainer. Well, maybe you're not used to being in a church that just preaches through the Bible. Um, We're not really going Genesis to Revelation, but when we land in a book, we teach through the book. And divorce is next. So when I'm done with this message, I know what's next. Verse 33 next week oaths are speech. I don't make it up, I'm not preaching at a particular person this Sunday. It's there. It's next. The second reason is because Jesus taught it. Today, remember that our text is from the mouth of our Lord Jesus, and Jesus taught it. Thirdly, and not surprisingly, because Jesus Jesus taught it, it's in the Bible. So it's next in our text. Jesus taught it. It's in the Bible. Furthermore, number four, the world needs it. The world needs it. I don't need to illustrate this morning, I don't need to take time to even throw statistics out there of what's happening on the marriage front. Not only the failure rate of marriages, many statistics show that in Christian world the marriage failure rate and divorce rate is essentially the same as the rate of non-Christian or non-Christ followers. There's been a couple groups of people who've been looking at some of those numbers, and encouragingly, people who are in a committed walk with Jesus Christ, and people who are a part of Christianity where they are committed to the Word of God, and, and, and can articulate a saving faith in Christ, the divorce rate is significantly lower. So where it's somewhere in the 40 percentile for everybody else, almost 50 percentile of half of all marriages ending in divorce, and a similar look in what they call Christian world, in Christ-following Bible world, it's significantly lower, but interestingly enough, it's somewhere around 25, 23 percent. That's still pretty high. The world needs it. The church needs it. I just referenced that. Marriage deserves it. Marriage is so sacred and marriage is so significant that it is worth the investment of our time and attention in understanding the theology of it and the enemies of it. Finally, our young people need it you would probably be surprised, maybe not, but you would be surprised how often in the last few years young people have come to my office to be married and they are already cohabiting and they name the name of Christ. I've referenced this before and you need to know that if I discern that I think they're marriageable, According to the biblical standard, I have a three-strand cord that we have to tie together before we will swing onto the marriage bridge. One is, are you both believers in the Lord Christ? This is kind of good for you to know in case you're thinking about marriage. If you can't pass these three tests, don't come to me. Because I will tell you, no, I'm not going to do your wedding. I don't like to be that way. I try to say it as nicely as I can. I don't even ask you to give me a final answer while you're in my office. I say, go home and think about it and then email me back if you want to get back together. Three times in the last three years. They never email me back and they never show up in our services again. First of all, are you born again? Can you be equally yoked? Secondly, do you have the blessing of your parents? Thirdly, are you violating any wisdom principles? If those three things come out at least a C plus and above, we try to work with you. The first one has to be in solid A. You have to know Jesus Christ as your Savior because the Bible specifically speaks to that. The second one, the blessing of your parents, is... The reality of the fact that apart from the blessing of your parents, you probably will struggle with a marriage that is not blessed. And thirdly, violating wisdom principles that has to do with finances and debt and jobs and whether you can move out of your parents' home. These kinds of things. So here we are in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and our topic is divorce. You know, if you've been here, that as we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, that the Lord Jesus is in this section, as He teaches the crowds, um, that is known as an antithesis. Um, theologians call this section the, the sixth ant- antithesis. That is, you have heard it said, but I'm going to tell you something differently. They're, they're not really anti, because... Um, If it were, you would have to say where you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, the real antithesis of that would be thou shalt kill, right? But the point is that Jesus is coming up against the law and where the crowd has a specific understanding and an interpretation of the law, often largely influenced by the rabbinical teaching of the day and the Pharisees of that day who had turned it and bent it and distorted it often, Jesus is, is in, a, in a sense, correcting the course, saying, you've got it down in your head and you know what the Old Testament says about this section of the law, but I'm here to tell you that this is what it means. And, and in a sense, he adds to the law, he completes the law, he expands upon the law. He he gives us an understanding of of the spirit of the law so that though we might have some kind of pharisaical, external conformity and a piety that I wouldn't do such a thing, that the condition of my heart betrays me and actually I'm guilty on all fronts. And so Jesus moves in a logical order from adultery into divorce. Perhaps nothing damages and destroys the underpinnings of a marriage than when somebody violates their marriage vow and enters into an adulterous relationship. And so I think as Jesus has been teaching on adultery, and we dealt with that last week, He then moves to the third statement that He's going to make, and it has to do with divorce. Our text is only two verses. Jesus says in verse 31, Matthew 5, It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. Wow. Brings lots of questions to mind. We have limited time to deal with it, but I do think that we can effectively address what Jesus is teaching here and, and give ourselves a, a good understanding of what's happening. To do that, I, I want us to understand three, three factors, three realities that I believe are behind the address here. Jesus has three things in mind, at least. It's always a little dangerous for Van Marceau to guess what's going on in the mind of Jesus if it's not written down But we know what Jesus thinks because we have recorded in significant length in other passages what he said about these subjects. So here in chapter 5, he only has two verses. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. We will get there eventually, but because of today, we will probably minimize our teaching on it. But we may address other questions by the time we get to chapter 19 that we will not have time to address today. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus once again is addressing the subject and topic of divorce, only this time it's about 10 or 11 verses long, and we understand a little bit more of what's happening. And so the first of the three factors is going to be touched upon in Matthew chapter 19, which will help us understand a little bit what's happening in Matthew chapter 5. Let's read this. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond Jordan, and large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him. They were always trying to uh, pin Him down with theological conundrums and and difficult questions and they wanted him to contradict the law because they wanted a reason to, to belittle him and attack him and even kill him eventually. So they would sit around and think of questions that they wanted to ask this teacher, Jesus. And they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So look what Jesus does. He doesn't even answer that question. He goes immediately to the reality and foundation of marriage found in Genesis. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? By the way, there is a defining factor of what a marriage is, regardless of what the state of Virginia says or any other state. Okay? It's not marriage. Okay, It's not marriage unless it's a male and a female the source is Jesus. That's a pretty good source. He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And He said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, that's a loaded verse as well, and we'll not unpack it right now completely, but there's at least two things you see right away. Okay, So, along with the male and female part of marriage, we also enter into a marriage when you create a new identity and you leave your father and mother and establish a new home. So, young people, if you're not ready to leave home, you're not ready to be married. All right. Now, you can demonstrate to me how... Healthy it is to build an addition onto the house and have your family staying. And I guess you could work that out. The Amish do. The Mennonite do. But you have to have your own defined space. Okay? You have to have your own kitchen for your bride before you get married. Not your mama's kitchen. Okay? Your own bathroom for your bride. Not your mama's bathroom. Okay? You had to get out of their space. You're a man now. Man up. Don't live off your dad. And if you can't do that, then you're not ready to get married. Okay? All right? If you can't do that, you're not ready to get married. You're funny, Toke. So, the first thing we see in Matthew 19 is that they have to leave. And then they have to cleave. They have to become one flesh and they enter into the physical union. So, they are no longer two but one flesh. Now this is at the heart of our message today. Don't miss it. What you're reading here in God's design from Genesis. This is a quote from Genesis and what you're reading here is a reality of God's design that is so sacred that when the marriage bed is defiled that it is sin and it is an atrocity. Okay? So here's what he says. You're no longer two but you are one. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So then they said to him, verse 7, Then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. There's a couple references here, and we're going to look at one a little more in detail. There was a time when, The Israelites were in danger of losing their very identity as God's people because they had so intermarried in unlawful relationships, forbidden by God, and brought in pagan wives. And God told Moses, you tell those men to divorce those wives and only live with their Israelite wives. So that was part of what's probably being referenced here. And then there's another part that we'll reference in a minute. He said, it's because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. So something else you need to get from this teaching from Christ here is that divorce was never part of God's plan. In the book of Malachi, it says that God hates divorce. I've never found anybody who's been through a divorce that doesn't agree with God on that. You recognize how damaging it is and how hateful it all is. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There are a number of interpretations of what Jesus is referencing here, but I believe, partly because of the disciples' response, that he's speaking specifically about the bond of a betrothal and a marriage, that it is about a man and a wife who are married or legally bound to be married seen as equivalent, even though the marriage hasn't been physically consummated, the disciples say to him, if, it, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If the, if the only reason I can get rid of her is sexual immorality, I better really think carefully about whether I want her to be my wife. So the first thing I want you to see is that divorce is a cause of a sinful Propensity. Okay, Jesus goes back to the beginning. Now, I want you to turn to Genesis with me, to chapter 3. I'm still building this point. It's okay if you don't understand it yet. In Genesis chapter 3, we have recorded for us what theologians call the fall of man. It wasn't where Adam and Eve tripped on a root and fell down and bruised their knee, but the fall is a reference to the fact that for the first time, man disobeyed God and sinned. And it resulted in the reality of the fact that sin was brought into the human race and passed on. Paul said it like this, in Adam all die. One of the things that happens is people will, people will say, I wish Adam and Eve hadn't done that. And we all would agree with that. But you also think in your head, if I were Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have done it. The reality of depravity, that is, the essence of our sinfulness before God is that indeed we would have. It wasn't just the luck of the draw that Adam and Eve happened to be the ones and they failed the test. What they did is what we would have done. It's the human condition. And so in chapter 3, we have the account of that fall. This is also the very reason that God, out of His love and His kindness, sends the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, who comes and where the first Adam passed sin to all men, through the second Adam, righteousness can be passed to all who come in faith, believing at the cross. But in Genesis chapter 3, when God is confronting Adam and Eve about this situation and about their sin, remember they, this is where they hid. and they, they hid in the bushes and tried to cover their nakedness for the first time. They were aware of a nakedness. They were ashamed for the very first time in their lives and so forth. And God, and you know this story well, God passes judgment down. And notice in verse 16, when He addresses what's going to happen to the woman, He says this, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. It's undeniable that happened, right? It's undeniable. And that package of pain begins with girls when they're younger. It's at its peak in the very birthing process. And then even in the emotional framework, it is affected by the pain of childbearing and all that goes on in a woman's body to make her able to have children. And I doubt there's a woman here that would say that that indeed is a curse. And so God goes on to say, you're going to have this pain issue to deal with and it's a physiological thing and it's emotional and it's it's mental, it's got all kinds of... Strings attached. And your desire, he goes on to say, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The second part of what happened with the curse... Is that you got a man, you got a woman, then sin enters the world, and marriage was designed to be permanent, and marriage was designed to be beautiful, and marriage was designed for the man and the woman to fit together in perfect unity, and then man sinned, and because of sin, the residual of sin is pain in childbearing, and pain in your marriage relationship. Because what happens here is, he said, and theologians discuss this. What does this exactly mean? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Most of us pretty much understand that if you're married. Almost every man that's married understands what it is for his wife to always try to tell him what to do. And how he can never quite do things the way his wife wants them done. And so what the man does in his humanity and in his flesh is he snaps back at her to show her that she cannot rule over him. And no, I will not paint this bathroom for the sixth time. It's done. It's over. And then we're not happy. It's an interesting word. You see it in chapter 4 in verse 7 when he's talking to Cain after when Cain brings an unworthy offering to the Lord and he ends up disregarding the counsel of God to him to just do what is right and then you'll be accepted. But. Cain disregards it and ends up murdering his brother Abel. But look what it says in chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It's the same exact word. In the word picture of sort of a uh, um, this anthropomorphical word picture where sin is humanized or animalized, where it's crouching at the door like a wild animal. And it's, person, it's like a personification of sin. It wants to pounce on you. It, wants to, it desires you like a dog that wants to jump on you and bite you. It's a desire to dominate. And it's the same word that's used back in chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband. You will want to have a, a position over him, but I'm going to place you under him and it's going to create conflict. And so one of the things that's happening is the reality of divorce, not just in the 21st century, but the reality of divorce in the day of Christ, in Jesus' day, back to Matthew chapter 5. All of that to lay a foundation for the reality that divorce has a cause. And its cause is the sinful propensity that is in all of us. Divorce has a cause. And the cause is a sinful propensity. Our bent is to offend one another. Our bent is to become tired of one another. Our bent in our sinful leftover residual flesh is to not be happy with the other individual. And so when the Pharisees approach Jesus about this topic, immediately he just goes back to Genesis. And don't you know that in the beginning it wasn't so. In the beginning it wasn't supposed to be this way. That it's a result of sin. And so we're dealing with a sin topic. Secondly, in chapter 5, I want you to see that in Jesus' day, he's dealing with a legal technicality. A legal technicality. Evidently, and historians and Bible students tell us that when Jesus addresses this topic of, the, of divorce, that in that culture, there in Israel, dominated by Rome, that divorce was rampant and that marriage was in chaos. And, and so what he's addressing here, back at verse 31 of chapter 5, it is that he's also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. We're going to see what they're quoting you're going to see that it's never commanded. And so this antithesis is different than the others in that Jesus is referencing something that they understand from the law, but unlike the Ten Commandments where we've already dealt with the sixth command and the seventh command, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery, this is, this is not a command command, and this idea that you can get a divorce with a certificate. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But it was a distortion in their mind and it had become a divorce technicality. In a way, it was kind of like no-fault divorce was rampant. You don't have to have much of a reason, just fill out the certificate. Because if you divorce your wife and she doesn't have a certificate, then she can't go get remarried and you can't go get remarried. And so the pharisaical understanding of the Mosaic law had become, as long as you write out a certificate, you're good to go with your divorce. And so it was kind of like a a legal technicality. So that's another reason that Jesus is addressing this. He already understands completely the sinful propensity of all the people listening and of us but how relevant is it here as well that Jesus addresses what was rampant in that culture, this technicality of a certificate? You go downtown, fill out the paperwork, it's a pretty easy process. As long as you do that, in and out, go. And now the fad is to throw a divorce party. Invite all your friends and celebrate that you just got rid of 210 pounds of dead weight. I was talking about the husband. The husband the husband was 210 pounds but I also want you to see that as Jesus addresses this they're talking about something that Moses said but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife you've heard it said give her a certificate of divorce Jesus then says for clarification but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality All right, this is kind of interesting So here's what's happening culturally. In their culture, divorce had become rampant. It was common. They had written in their um, books uh, about... the, The Pharisees added to books. They had technical books and they had official law books and rule books where they added to the law of Moses and they defined down how you could live it out, what you could do, what you couldn't do. I'm going to read some of that to you in just a minute. And so there were schools of thought. We know this for sure. Historians have the writings, and we know that there were two main schools of rabbinical thought. The one that was dominating the day was a rabbi uh, named something like Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, Um, We have his writings, we know what he taught, and basically he taught that the deal was that as long as you wrote out the certificate of divorce, you were good to go, and it was based on a teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I want you to turn there now. Deuteronomy chapter 24, because many Bible commentaries and Bible students believe that this was the crux of the matter as to what Jesus was dealing with. So let me clarify. You turn to Deuteronomy, chapter 24. In Matthew 5, where we just left, these two verses that are our text, when when Jesus says, for his introduction on this, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Where did they hear that? Many Bible students believe it's Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 2. Jesus is adding to that, though, and saying... But I'm telling you, only for sexual immorality can you give a divorce and get a divorce, okay? Because here's what was happening. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, some clarification on the law concerning divorce. Moses writes, when a man takes a wife, verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and further on anyway the point is she's not supposed to remarry the first guy who divorced her she's supposed to stay married to the guy she is or single you don't come back and remarry the guy once he's been married to another woman what I want you to see is that the controversy and that the people in Jesus' audience likely had this teaching in mind and it was not a command, but it was a, a particular clarification on an aspect of what they were dealing with and they had turned it into kind of a right They had turned it into what they would consider to be a command. As long as you write out a certificate of divorce, you're good to go. And why would you write out a certificate of divorce? In Deuteronomy 24, 1, it says, if he found some indecency in her. So the third thing that's influencing our text today and our understanding of our text, the first thing was a sinful propensity in people to not get along and to have a divorce. That certainly influences why Jesus is teaching it. Secondly, was a legal technicality where the audience is understanding that as long as they did the paperwork, they were good to go. Thirdly, the final and third point that we want to kind of get our brain wrapped around for understanding this passage is what I'm calling scriptural ambiguity, scriptural ambiguity. In other words, divorce was common in that day because of of a debate over the interpretation of of the Deuteronomy 24 passage. And it had to do with what we could call an ambiguity over what is indecency. So let your eyes go back down to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and look what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, but she, then she finds no favor in his eyes. Oh boy, here we go. I don't like this woman. Because why? Because he has found some indecency in her. Okay, now here's where the trouble begins. What does that mean? You define some indecency in her. Well, one of the ways we interpret the Bible is to look, what we already did this morning, is look in the Bible for where they use that word again and see how it's used. Just like we did in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. You, you will want to dominate or rule over. We looked at how, how sin wants to, has a desire to rule over. That's what I'm talking about. This one's pretty easy in my Bible. They're right across the column from one another. In chapter 23 and verse 12 through 14, this word is used only one other time in the Bible and it's used on the same page. This idea of some indecency. What is that? Because if we know what that indecency is, then we can get a certificate of divorce and off we go. Because that's what he said. As long as you had this indecency and you wrote the certificate of a divorce. Notice this uncleanliness in the camp is the name of the title of the section of this Bible of my Bible, in my ESV, beginning with verse 12. It begins with verse 9, and it's talking about hygiene things and cleanliness. And in verse 12, it says, You shall have a place outside the camp. This is a little bit crass. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel, a little shovel with your tools. And when you sit down outside... You shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. So now you know why you're squatting down out there. Because the Lord, your God, verse 14, walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent. There's the same word, anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So, Bible students debate what exactly does this word mean? In the, in the origin of the word, okay, and we can just, really, we can just go back to Matthew 5. In the origin of the word, the idea of some indecency from Deuteronomy 24 that we just read, it literally, it literally translates the nakedness of a thing. The nakedness of a thing. It's the idea of an indecent exposure, some inappropriate uncovering that is sexual in nature. That's as far as it goes. So when in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we can understand what it is interpreted, I take it based upon what Jesus clarifies in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 except for adultery. This indecency has to do with inappropriate sexual behavior. I would take it in Deuteronomy 24. But here's what happened to these guys. Under the Hillel rabbinic teaching, they had written big books defining for the people what an indecency entailed so that they knew what it was they could write a certificate of divorce for. And let me read to you what some of this is. In the Mishnah, it stated that a man could divorce his wife if, he were, if she were barren. Okay, you want to know what some indecency is? The Mishnah defines it out as she's barren, she can't have children. Divorce her. Write her a certificate of divorce. If she became a deaf mute, or if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy. Another passage in the Mishnah insisted that a man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services in the home. You've got to remember it was a man's world. It still is in the East, isn't it? Nothing has done more to liberate women truly for God's design than Christianity. Don't ever forget that. Each day she required, each day she, for her services in the home, she was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, and weave with wool. If she brought one servant into the marriage, okay, this is what's being defined by the rabbis helping them define what an indecency or a dissatisfaction with your wife is so that you could write a certificate of divorce said, if she brought one servant into the marriage, she did not have to grind, bake, or wash. If she brought a second servant into the marriage, she did not have to nurse the children or cook. If she brought a third servant into the home, she did not have to make up the bed or work in wool. If she brought four servants into the home, she could sit in a chair all day long and not lift a finger. However, if her husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Rabbonic law also stated that certain physical defects in the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce, this indecency. The general principle was that any physical defect or blemish that was serious enough... To disqualify a man from the priesthood was sufficiently repulsive to serve as a ground for divorce. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped, or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat in the back. He could divorce his wife if she had poor posture, or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. And on and on it goes. I suggest that you just love your wife's eyebrows the way they are. (laughs) Stay out of that world. Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus is standing there talking to the people. The crowd is gathered. The Pharisees have reinterpreted the law so that if you have this whole list of things, that is an indecency. And they've even twisted it. Instead of an allowance for divorce that was actually in the Mosaic Law, an allowance, never a command... Okay, They had distorted it to where Moses commanded, and you can get a divorce as long as this indecency is present. But Jesus knows their hearts, and He knows that there's a propensity to sin, and so divorce is an issue. He also knows uh, that there is a technicality legally where they're they're all hung up on filling out the paperwork and then he also knows that the ambiguity of what this indecency is is something that they've written big books about explaining and so he defines it down further and let your eyes go down and so he says to them but I say to you, verse 31 whoever divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. So Jesus... We don't have time to expand it now, and this is an important part of the message, so just listen to the point. The point is that the act of marriage, the marriage bed, the physical union, it it is more than just a, a fascinating subject for movies and magazines. It is sacred. That's why you don't do it until you're married. And it is so sacred that when the marriage bed is violated, though it was not the plan from the beginning, God says that this violation is so serious and it is so destructive to the marriage framework that I will allow a divorce in this case. It's an allowance for the hardness of our hearts. Because people who live out the beatitudes don't commit adultery. People who are meek meek in spirit. People who are broken in their hearts. People who are humble, they don't commit adultery. I want to end by just rattling off a list that might be helpful to you because right now, a bunch of questions just get thrown out there. Okay. And so some of you are thinking, if I could just convince my partner to have adultery, I could get that paperwork filled out and they're gone and I'm clean biblically because I really would like them to get out of my house. And it's easy to think that way. But also, Christian people find themselves in these situations, don't they? Where your partner is involved in adultery. What do you do? How do you handle it? Let me make one other statement before I read you my list, and then we're going to close in prayer. Because here's what people want to know. Okay, on what grounds then can, can a Christian ever get divorced? Okay? Okay, so, to the point of Jesus' teaching... Adultery opens the door for a potential divorce. There's other factors, but it can open the door for a potential divorce, biblically speaking. In my understanding of Scripture, there's only one other basis. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is teaching the Corinthian church on marriage, and he talks there about somebody coming to Christ. See, these people were first-generation Christians. They come to know Christ, their spouse does not know Christ, and their spouse doesn't want anything to do with Christ, and in fact they leave because they can't stand the name of Christ, and they're out of here, I'm over. And Paul says, let them go, and you are no longer bound. I take it that desertion by an unsaved spouse opens the door for a potential divorce. Those two circumstances. Say, what if my husband's really mean? What if he hits me? Get away from him. There's all kinds of questions that come up. But the Bible only allows divorce, and marriage is so important that it only allows divorce in two circumstances. Sexual immorality and desertion of an unsafe partner. There's other questions too that come up which are like, well, what entail? how much sex? What kind of sex? That's why you need wise, godly counselors Alright, so I want to, this was on my heart, and I want to at least rattle it off, and then if this strikes a chord with anybody, we can follow up with you. So how does a Christian respond biblically to an unfaithful spouse? We're talking about believers in the Lord Christ, and a spouse is involved in adultery. How should you respond? Number one, reconciliation is always the goal of the Christian. Okay, so here's my point in reading this list of 12 things, and it'll go quickly. I don't want you to go away from this message with the takeaway that if there has been some kind of sexual immorality, I get to run down to the courthouse and get rid of this guy. I want you to fight for your marriage. I want you to know that it's allowed for the hardness of heart, but that it's not the next thing on the agenda. Reconciliation is always the goal of the Christian. Galatians six one. Restoration is all. number two. Resolve in your heart that you will not retaliate, because you're going to be so angry. You're going to hate, and you're going to be angry. Resolve that you will not retaliate. You are a Christ follower. Romans twelve seventeen to twenty. We talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. Number three. Remember that the wrath or anger of a person does not produce the righteousness of God. So you have to be sure that your anger is the righteous anger, not a selfish, fleshly, kill-you anger. Because if you want the righteousness of God to come work in your home, your anger will be a lid on it. Remember that your wrath, the wrath of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. Number four, recognize that the Christian is called to a high standard of forgiveness. Okay? It's coming up here, but let me say it now. Adultery is not an unforgivable sin. That's not a reason to go do it, God forbid. But it is a reason for you to fight for your marriage and to seek forgiveness. And believers are called to a very high standard of forgiveness. Peter once asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive this bum? Seven times? And Jesus said, 70 times seven. And that's another whole message. Realize that all adulterers are liars, and so you better be discerning. Number six, realize that it will take time, significant time, for God to convict and to call back His wandering sheep or to soften a heart of stone. So people come to me and say, he committed adultery, he's been unfaithful, and I've been single for three months. Can I go get a divorce? You better give it time for God to work and grind on that guy. I'm particularly talking about people who name the name of Christ. Seven, make sure you are closely guided by godly counselors. Limit it to one or two godly counselors. Don't tell everybody in the world about it. And don't use your friends as your counselors. Number eight, know that almost always things are going to get worse before they get better. Number nine, the broken season when everything is terrible. The broken season is a season for you personally, the innocent party, to own up to any of your own contributing failures and to get your life in order. Don't waste the pain. Number ten, resolve to love like Christ who gave himself up for his bride, who is, by the way, the church, who is often, by the way, an adulterating, fornicating, offensive bride. Number 11, remember that adultery is not the unforgivable sin, but it will take much grace to forgive. Ask God for that grace. Number 12, seek to resolve your issues with God's people. 1 Corinthians 6, it is condemned in scripture specifically for two believers to go to a secular courthouse and let a secular judge deal with their problems and we sin not only in the divorce in the divorce bed the adulterating bed but we sin in the courtroom when two people who name the name of Christ go before the unsaved which is specifically prohibited in scripture you should call a panel of elders and pastors together in a closed meeting, and the two of you sit there, and you should work it out. And if you can't live together, they will help you figure out how to live apart. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is a serious subject, and um, we want to understand Your Word, and it's such a high, culturally impacting topic as well. Would You, Lord, just... Have your way with us so that our hearts are humble and we're walking in the truth. Take the message and encourage us, Lord. Father, for people who are hurting and broken and struggling, would you please lift them up? Would you please wrap your arms around them? Father, if I've said anything in a harsh manner or an offensive manner, would you obliterate it from their thinking? Would you help us to live victoriously over sin? In the flesh, and that your church would be a beautiful, pure, spotless church. Strengthen the homes and marriages here, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.